to do the work called? Would you give them the resources they need uh, to do uh, all that they aspire to do in the city? Would you do more through them than they could imagine? Lord, we also pray for those in healthcare. Would you be with our doctors, nurses, uh, anesthesia techs, uh, x-ray techs, folks who care for and love uh, those who are in great need? Father, would you fill them up with a sense of your calling on their lives as they bring healing that only you can provide? We thank you for advances in technology, science, medicine that allows our bodies to be healed. And Lord, would you continue to do miracles in a space of healthcare so that folks who should not be alive might be alive and that those of us in that, who, are, who belong to you in that space would be able to give you glory there as well. Now, Lord, as we hear your word, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might be changed and we might see more of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen. scripture reading this afternoon is from Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. The passage can be found on page 10 of the bulletin and will also be projected above. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased the word of the Lord. Thank you, Julie. Wade didn't do you any favors with the microphone here. <laughs> okay, uh, kids, three things that I want you to listen for. You can find that spot on your, uh, on your Trinity Kids bulletin. You can jot these down that I want you to listen for. One is PDA. Secondly, uh, arguing with your parents. And then thirdly, the phrase, you are the beloved. So PDA, arguing with your parents, and you are the beloved. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we look at these verses together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true. We thank you that you have given it to us because you love us and because you want us to know your love. And Father, we thank you that you have shown us that love most clearly in sending your son. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see him today. We pray that you do that by your spirit. For we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, so kids, I'm actually going to start talking to you uh, this afternoon. Start there. Um, so I want to uh, talk to you about something that you're probably familiar with, uh, whether you know this term or not. Uh, I want to talk about PDA. And uh, some of you hear that and you go, yep, I know exactly what he's talking about, right? Public display of affection. And uh, that's very close. And that is typically how that, uh, how that uh, what is that, Acro not acronym, abbreviation, <clears throat> that's what it is, uh, how it's used. That's not exactly what I'm talking about, though. Um, I'm talking about a different kind of PDA, and it's parental display of affection, Okay. <laughs> And uh, I'm referring to you seeing your parents hug each other or kiss each other or look into each other's eyes in front of you, right? And for most of us, that is super awkward. There's something that makes us really uncomfortable about that, right? Um, and, and here's the thing, though. Have you ever wondered why that is? Well, I'm sorry I'm making you think of it right now. <laughs> 
But have you ever wondered why it is that you do feel this sense of like, I don't want to watch them do that, right? I think the reason for that, though, is because what you are seeing in your parents is something intimate happening between them. And, uh, and you see them hugging each other, you see them looking at each other like that because they love each other. And so in that moment, what you're getting is this glimpse of what is the true nature of their love and affection for one another. And because it's so intimate like that, it can feel a little bit uncomfortable. So I mention that because that's sort of what's happening in this passage. So uh, this is our our third week in our uh, series in the Gospel of Luke. We skipped chapters one and two that we'll come back to in Advent. Um, But but in this passage in chapter three, what we have is Jesus coming back on the scene, actually entering for the first time for us in chapter three. Um, And it's after this long section about uh, John the Baptist uh, that we looked at a couple weeks ago. So he's baptized by John in this passage. says that the spirit descends on him bodily. And then you hear these words that are spoken by the Father to his Son. And it's in that section right there, these words that we hear, that we have this super intimate picture. And we're, we're, uh, if you've been around the church for a while, you, you might be familiar with this passage, you might be familiar with those words. And so it, it might not seem as big of a deal to you, but if you step back and think about this, uh, this might actually be something that you would expect to be shared privately. To hear a father speak this way to his son is something incredibly intimate. But the thing is that Jesus wants us to overhear this. He wants everybody around these crowds to hear it, and he wants us to hear it and listen in on these words from the Father. Why? Because what these words do is they give us this glimpse into the very heart of God for his beloved son. And that's incredibly important for us to see uh, as Jesus begins his ministry, it's important for us to understand what he's doing in his ministry, his relationship to his father. Here's the thing though, this actually says something that is so deeply personal for you and for me as well. Because what Jesus' baptism does is it shows God's heart for you. And I, I think part of what's happening here is that Jesus wants to show you the intimacy that he has between him and his father because you are invited into that very same intimacy. So uh, Brennan Brennan Manning uh, says this beautifully. He says, Jesus discloses God's true feelings toward us. So why is that such a big deal? Why why would it be such a big deal to talk about this intimacy into which we're invited? I think for this reason, because one of these struggles, one of the biggest struggles that I think you and I have is believing what the Bible says about God's heart for you. I've, uh, I've mentioned this before, but uh, there were two, two pastors independently of one another who talked about their call, their vocation as pastors as fundamentally being convincing their people that God really does love them. And um, I didn't think much of that at first. Over the years, I've come to resonate deeply with that. And part of the reason for that is because I know that's exactly what I need. And that's what all of us need. Um, There's a a great scene in uh, Mad Men uh, where there's a conversation between Don Draper and Wendy. And, uh, And so Wendy says this. She says, does someone love me? And Don says, wait, what? Wendy says, that's what your question was. He says, why would you say that? He doesn't remember, he, he didn't actually say those words. She says, because that's everyone's question. Does someone love me? And the thing about that is, that is the question 
that we ask of God. Does he really love me? And what this passage does for us it, is it answers that question with this unequivocal yes. God's heart for you is one that, that, that is for you because he loves you. And so while there are only uh, two verses that we're looking at today, there is so much packed into them. Here's what I really want you to see, though. Jesus shows the Father's heart for you. And we're going to uh, look at three different ways that we see that in this passage. Here's the first. Jesus, Jesus shows God's heart for you first by identifying with you in his baptism. By identifying with you in his baptism. So uh, Luke actually doesn't say much about uh, Jesus' baptism at all here. It's not even like a full sentence. You get a clause at the beginning. Um, he says less than Matthew and Mark does. Uh, he, he focuses more on what happens after Jesus' baptism. We'll look at that in a minute. I want you to just see how brief this is. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, then he moves on. That's it. Uh, so two weeks ago, though, uh, we, we looked at John's baptism. And, uh, and you might remember that uh, John kind of uh, brought the heat, right? Um, he comes out uh, talking to the crowds who come to him by calling them a brood of vipers. He's heavy on this call to repentance. And then over and over again in the first part of Luke chapter 3, he's warning people about God's coming judgment. And that's why uh, what Luke says in verse 3 of chapter 3, that John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying that's why you need to be baptized. That's why those people there did. So here's the thing about that. You hear that and you think, okay, if that's what John's baptism is all about, then why in the world would Jesus give himself to that baptism? He was completely sinless. He had no need for the forgiveness of sins. He had nothing to repent of. And actually what happens in, uh, in Matthew's account is that for that reason, John initially is not gonna baptize Jesus. He won't do it at first because Jesus was sinless. So why would he give himself to this baptism? Well, he, he does so for this reason. He was baptized in order to fully identify with us and to fully represent us. And so uh, this is another place where we need to remember the context here. So remember, he's speaking here to these Israelites uh, who were a sinful people. These were uh, God's people who had rebelled against him. They had ceased to be faithful before him. They had gone looking for other gods at this point. They, they refused to be a light to the nations. They had rejected him completely. And so part of what Luke is doing here is he's showing that there is now a new, true, faithful Israelite that is now on the scene. One who's going to completely identify with his people by being baptized on their behalf. So he's being baptized here because he's going to represent them. And so what, what happens is that his baptism becomes the way that he's going to be publicly marked out as the Messiah who would ultimately die and bear the sins of his people. And so what's amazing about this is that right from the very beginning of his ministry, before he said anything else, you get this hint of the kind of work that Jesus came to do. And so Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, here already, he indicates how he will become our savior. By standing in the river in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. And so already, at the very beginning, what you get in Jesus's ministry is a picture of the heart of God for you. And one of the reasons that I think it's so important to see this point 
is because this is probably not the view of God that we might expect. The, the, the picture of God that you see in Jesus is one who has such great love for his people that he would actually step into our guilt and the filth of our sin rather than step away from it. And he would do that in order to bear that sin on your behalf. And so what you need to see here is that Jesus is stepping down into the waters of the Jordan and he's saying, I am with them. And I know everything about what kind of people they are. I know everything that they've done. And that's exactly why I'm here. That's exactly why I'm giving myself to stand into their place to one day bear the judgment for their sin. Why is that so important for us to see? I think it's so important because one of the main reasons that we struggle to believe God's love to be real is the fact of our sin. And what Jesus shows us here is that he is fully aware of your sin. He is fully aware of it and that that is exactly the reason that he came in the first place, to step into your place and to represent you before the judgment seat. So J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change his mind. For God justified you with his eyes open. That's why Jesus was baptized, to identify with you and to represent you. And it shows God's heart for you. Again, one of the things I mentioned here, uh, what's really interesting is that Luke doesn't talk much about Jesus' baptism. That's really not his focus. His focus is on what happens afterwards. So secondly, Jesus shows God's heart for you by fulfilling God's promise of a Messiah. By fulfilling God's promise of a Messiah. So verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Okay, so two huge things happening here. Here's the first. The heavens were opened. So what's going on here? What is the point of this? Why is that so important? A couple of reasons. Um, when the, the Bible uses that image of the heavens being opened, it's usually in the context of some sort of prophetic vision happening. And so the, 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 there's a sense in which what happens when the heavens are opened is that the, the curtain's getting pulled back. And it's as though you get a picture of what's really happening, of true reality. And so in this case, you're about to see what's really going on. Specifically, you're about to see who this Jesus really is. That's part of what's going on here. The other reason it's important uh, is because there's a similar phrase that's used in Isaiah 64. In that context, though, Isaiah is begging God to come. He says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And so what Luke wants you to see is that that is exactly what's happening here. That you're actually getting to see the reality that God has come and he has come in the person of Jesus. So that, that, that's one image uh, that's happening here right after Jesus' baptism. Here's the other. It's that the spirit, he says, descends on him like a dove. Again, uh, this might not seem like that big of a deal to us, but uh, th there are a number of really important echoes that would have immediately come to mind in, in Luke's original audience. And one is, is the echo of the original creation account. So if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, verse 2, there's this kind of weird phrase about the, the, the Spirit of God. And it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
And obviously, uh, what's being talked about there is the, the original creation, the creation of all things. But here's what's really interesting. When, when Luke talks about the Spirit now hovering over the person of Jesus at his baptism, it's a way to signal to us that he's talking here about another creation. But this creation is going to be a new creation. It's going to be a new creation where God's going to begin that work of remaking this broken world that's been ravaged by sin. And the point for us to see is that what what God is saying by the Spirit descending is that it's going to happen through the person and ministry of Jesus. Jesus is going to be the one who does it. So that's one echo. The second's maybe uh, more obvious, and it's from Isaiah 42.1. And so uh, this is the the beginning of this section of Isaiah that that, that, uh, is called the Servant Songs. Probably the one we're most familiar with is from Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering servant. We usually read that around Good Friday. But uh, here's what... Isaiah 42 says, as it's introducing the servant, he says this, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, and here's the echo, I have put my spirit upon him. And so Luke wants us to see that Jesus is that servant, that long-promised Messiah. But he doesn't just uh, want, him to see that, want us to see that, that he is God's servant. There's something else going on with the spirit here, because in the Old Testament, what the spirit would do often is to, to rush, that's the verb that's used, to rush on a king or a prophet to equip that king or that prophet for whatever the God, that God was calling him to do. And I want you to see that that's exactly what's happening here. That Jesus is being equipped for his mission in the world. Okay, so what does that have to say then about God's heart for us? Part of what it shows is that Jesus wasn't just willing to step into your place and bear your sin. He was actually fully equipped and able to do that. And so as the Lord's anointed Messiah, which is what's happening with the spirits descending, he's gonna do every single thing necessary to rescue you. And part of what that means is that he is going to obey perfectly in every aspect of the law. He is going to obey his father's voice every step of the way. At every single point, he's going to succeed where you and I have failed. And we're going to see this um, really clearly next week when we look at, uh, at the temptation in the wilderness in Luke 4. But you see this most clearly, of course, in the crucifixion itself. Uh, let me try to be a, a little more practical even about this, though. Because you have a Savior who has obeyed perfectly in your place, you now have nothing to prove. This means that your standing before God is 100% certain right now if you've put your faith in Jesus. And that's because his obedience, equipped and enabled by the Spirit, is now counted as your obedience. And all of that begins right here with the outpouring of the Spirit on Jesus right after his baptism. So this this long-awaited, promised Messiah has come for you. That's God's heart for you. Thirdly, and finally, and I think um, maybe most intimately and most personally, Jesus shows God's heart for you by hearing his Father's voice. By hearing his Father's voice. Verse 22. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And I mentioned that that there are so many echoes in this passage. There's one to Psalm 2 that we read earlier. There's another one to Isaiah 42 here that point him out as the servant and Messiah, this one that is beloved. 
Here's the thing, though, I don't want you to miss, because we could talk a whole lot about those references and how important they are. I don't want you to miss, though, that, that what we have in this passage is this amazing glimpse of this beautiful, intimate moment of a father speaking these words of deep affection for his son. And uh, and Keller points out here that that what we're actually getting is a glimpse into this eternal love of the Trinity, this love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has existed from all eternity. And there are so many things that we could talk about in terms of this rich, beautiful Trinitarian theology that's happening here, where you have the, the Spirit descending, you have the Son being baptized, you have the Father's voice speaking. Here's the thing, though, that is so wild about this. Because Jesus has chosen to identify with you by bearing your sin, so now you get to identify with him in sharing in the affection of the Father. And the reason that that's true is because in union with Christ, which is the way Paul often talks about our relationship to Jesus, in that relationship, what is true of Jesus as our representative is now true of us as well. And my guess is that if you have some familiarity with that that doctrine of the union with Christ, you think, you probably think about uh, the the way in which that then brings Jesus' sinlessness to us and uh, and it imputes our sin to Jesus. And that is wonderfully true. But it doesn't just mean that. It also means that in union with Jesus, you actually get to share in the very same love that the Father has for him. And this is actually what Jesus himself says in, uh, in John 17. He's praying to his father in this high priestly prayer, and he says, you, he's speaking to the father, father, he says, you have loved them even as you have loved me. And so let me just say this uh, abundantly clearly. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then the father speaks these exact same words over you. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And here's the thing about that, though. Um, My guess is that for at least some of you, you hear those words, and there is a part of you that that makes you feel pretty uncomfortable. Because there is something that rises up inside of you that that, that hears that, that thinks there is no way that is possible. That cannot be right. And there are all kinds of reasons that we think that. Sometimes it's because you have never, ever heard your parents say something like that to you in these kinds of words of affection and affirmation. And so you, there's a part of you that thinks like, that just doesn't seem right. Like, that can't really be true. Other times, it's because you are so used to hearing another voice that is so much louder than that voice. And it's that internal voice of shame and condemnation that is constantly showing you how you've messed up. And that voice is relentless and it is so loud that what it ends up doing is it drowns out this other voice of the Father. And sometimes it's just because you know your own sins and struggles intimately. And so there's a a part of you that that legitimately thinks like, there's a time that, that I don't really love me. I don't wanna be around me. And there's no way that the God of creation would ever say something like this to me. And, and here's the thing that I think uh, we've got to be so careful with that's so insidious about this. Um, there's something about that sort of self-deprecating, almost self-loathing that can feel and seem really pious. 
Because we start thinking like, I'm just calling it as it is. I know my own sin. I'm trying to take my sin seriously. And so what we end up doing is setting up all of these reasons why God shouldn't love us that way. We try and make a case to, to qualify the Father's words to us. So we say things like, okay, like, I get it. Like, I know he loves me. Jesus died for me, so he kind of has to, right? And, and, and because he, he has to have that sort of love for me, it's, it's part of the deal now. Here's the thing about this. Um, that's actually not how the Bible talks about the relationship between God's love and Jesus' death. So it, it, it's so important for us to understand this. So I, I, I want you to hear this. God didn't start loving you because Jesus died for you. God sent, his, sent Jesus to die for you because he loves you. Let me say that again. God didn't start loving you after Jesus died for you. He sent his son in the first place to die for you because he already loved you. Do you hear the difference there? And this is actually all over the Bible. Romans 5, 8 says this. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do, do you hear the order? Here's the deal. If I could put it this way. You don't get to determine whether God really loves you or not. You don't get to tell God whether you believe yourself to be lovable or not. And try as you might, you can't argue him out of loving you. If you're beloved to him, if he is pleased with you, then you don't get to tell him otherwise. And if you think about it, like I, I want you to picture this. Picture a child who's trying to make this case to their parent. Mom, let me tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't love me and why you probably don't love me, right? Like if you heard a child say that, there'd be something seriously wrong, right? It's ridiculous. That's what we try to do with God and his love for us. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then you are his beloved child. You are one in whom he is well pleased. And I really do think uh, that there are few, if any, more important things in our life with God than actually believing that you really are his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And I want you just to, uh, to think for a minute about um, what your life might look like if you really believe that to be true. My guess is um, your life would probably be marked by this, um, this steadfast, consistent, stable joy. You'd probably uh, be a person that, that, that's marked by a whole lot of rest and contentment rather than a bunch of hustle and hurry. You'd be a person who, who's likely gonna be really present with other people as one who can genuinely love them in really healthy ways because you no longer feel like you're trying to get something from them that you already have from your father. Uh, it, it's also likely that you'd be a person who would take some sort of courageous risk in really loving and serving people because you can do that in a place without being afraid of failure because you know that your father's love for you is not on the line. It is certain, it's steadfast. See, the, the beautiful thing about this is that it really is true. If you are in Jesus, then the Father says to you, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And if you still have doubts about that, let me point you to one more echo from this passage. It's, in, it's from Genesis 22. So in Genesis 22, there's a, a story of another father and a son. 
The, the, the father's name was Abraham. The son's name was Isaac. And in that passage, the Lord tells Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, and here's the echo, the son whom he loves, and to offer him as a sacrifice. And then uh, you're probably familiar with the story. At the last minute, the Lord stops Abraham. He provides this ram in the thicket instead as the sacrifice. Here's the thing about that, though. God the Father actually did give his son. He actually did give his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And he did that for you. It's actually Jesus' death that puts on display maybe most clearly this staggering love that the Father has for you. And so Paul says in Romans 8 that because that's true, Because the father didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, there is literally nothing that can separate you from his love. Not right now, and not ever. That is what Jesus offers you. This love that that will never, ever let you go. So I want to close with this. Um, uh, There's a quote from uh, Henry Nouwen in your bulletin. Uh, It's from his book that he wrote called uh, Life of the Beloved. And uh, this book was actually based on, a, um, on these letters that he had written with a New, uh, New York Times journalist. He had become friends with him. And uh, here's what he wrote to this man as this man was coming uh, to know Jesus. And I, I, I want to close with this because I want to leave you with this as you're thinking about the heart of God for you. All I want to say to you is, you are the beloved. And all I hope is that you can hear these words as spoken to you with all the tenderness and force that love can hold. My only desire is to make these words reverberate in every corner of your being. You are the beloved. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful uh, that you are the kind of father that you are, and yet, Lord, you know all the ways that we struggle to believe these words that you speak over us. We give you such great thanks uh, that your son puts on display the very heart that you have for us, that he is a savior and Messiah who is willing to step into our place to die for us, to assure us over and over again that your purposes towards us are certain and that your love for us is unchanging and eternal. And so, Father, we pray, we believe, help our unbelief. Pray in Christ's name, amen.